HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today on Eating Matters, we are going to have a two-part show. First, we're going to discuss the importance of conservation efforts and the need to protect our waterways with journalist Virginia Guin. Then we're going to continue our discussion about the role of technology in the agriculture space by speaking with Ariel Lauren Wilson, Editor-in-Chief of Edible and Program Director of the upcoming conference Food Loves Tech. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where, t- where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Lee Ute, and we're broadcasting from a very noisy Roberta's this Sunday evening on Heritage Radio Network. So we've been talking a lot about conservation efforts, with the, um, especially with the recent report of a very scary uh, UN report on climate change and, you know, also what the upcoming farm bill will do or won't do to promote sustainability in um, the agriculture industry. Today we're going to continue that thread and talk about conservation practices and those primarily in our waterways. We're going to talk about why they're important, what's currently being done throughout the country, and what the future looks like, um, you know, and what's been would been what is happening to encourage these practices. Virginia Gouin is joining the show to discuss. She's a freelance science journalist who's written a couple of pieces recently for Civil Eats about this topic. Um, Her articles include farm runoff in U.S. waterways has hit a crisis level, are farmers ready to change? And then more recently, she's written the piece, Farm Conservation Practices Are Profitable, But Will Lenders Step and Insurers Step Up? Um, and I'm so pleased that these two articles have brought her to the show. Virginia, welcome to Eating Matters. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to get right into it. Can you, um, first of all, why did you decide to write uh, these two pieces and focus specifically on our waterways? Well, uh, many years ago, I was actually working, um, I did a master's degree looking at uh, conservation reserve program lands and how um, we could keep the soil quality that had been built up in them 
um, on the land once they went back into production. And so I knew that things like no-till farming and cover crops and things like that could really help build soil quality and maintain it. And so I was curious, you know, how these practices had spread and um, to what degree they had spread around the country and how were they having an impact. And it didn't seem like they really could be at this point, given that we still continue to have this annual um, hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, other waterways like the Chesapeake Bay are really still struggling and Lake Erie turns into a pea soup kind of concoction on a fairly regular basis now. And so um, just really wanting to kind of dig in and figure out what are the drivers here? Why are these practices that we know are good and we know are helpful, um, why are they not making the impact that we need to see? Right. So let's start. Can you tell us just, you know, for those of uh, those of us who have just kind of no idea um, what this looks like, what is the runoff process? What exactly happens and what's the specific problem? So, you know, farmers grow crops and they want to make sure that their crops have ample nutrients available to them to flourish and to get reach the maximum possible yield. And that is their goal. And so they apply um, fertilizers, mm-hmm. nitrogen and phosphorus specifically. Um, but, you know, there's always a little extra. And if everybody has a little extra and we get our rains that we need to grow the crops, the extra flows off into the waterways. And, you know, all of those nutrients, um, you know, really start to matter um, when they all kind of pool together. And so you can get, um, you know, when you have excess nutrients in a waterway, it's going to continue to its point of exit. So like say the Gulf of, the Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. All of those nutrients collect there. And, you know, the algae love them, <laughs> they flourish. And so, these algal blooms can start to happen and they can kind of just grow out of control and consume all of the oxygen in the waterway and leave it as a dead zone. And so this is something that's an annual thing in the Gulf of Mexico and it's just getting bigger. And so it takes all of those farms along the whole of the Mississippi River doing something to soak up those nutrients and not allow them into the waterway to have any kind of measurable impact. And we're not achieving that. What is a dead zone specifically? Does that mean that nothing can, like, you know, fish can't... It means fish can die. It means uh, there can even be... Some harmful algal blooms can even produce toxins that can be harmful to fish, but really it's just the lack of oxygen. Um, and so most most critters in the waterways need oxygen to thrive. And so if they de- are deprived of that, they're just going to die. Um, so it's a lot of fish kills are the main thing. The other thing, the other bad part of a harmful algal bloom, if it flourishes without, you know, with all of these extra nutrients, is some of them can produce toxins that can actually be harmful to humans as well. And so, so the water supply gets contaminated in addition to or as well as, you know, as well as? these algo blooms in the dead zones? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, uh, and it's, it's a very um, cyclical thing. I mean, it's just this, you know, we see this pulse every year and it, you know, it's almost like the algae 
you know, all of the nutrients cause this bloom and then over time it dies back and then things kind of return to normal. But it's just a, a cycle that keeps happening. And, and every year the bloom gets bigger. And so it's just getting to like a really problematic stage where um, lawmakers, policymakers are getting pretty desperate to figure out what's going to have an impact. And is this, geographically speaking, just an issue for the Midwest? Like, does this affect farmers in the Northeast or California? It can affect any water body, um, you know, that has that has a, a pulse of nutrients. So, like I said, Lake Erie is having a consistent problem. There's some that are just consistently having problems. Chesapeake Bay, Lake Erie, all of the Great Lakes can, can have a problem to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gulf of Mexico is the biggie, though. Um, it, it really is the one that's um, pretty pretty out of control. And, uh, you know, all efforts to try to mitigate it aren't haven't been successful as of yet. And so when we talk, when you, you talk about conservation practices, the focus of your articles is on commodity crop growers, right? So are these farmers the biggest threat to our environment or, you know, and most in need of of the adoption of conservation practices? Like what about farmers in the meat industry? Really, it's, um, you know, it's mainly just that whole belt um, on in the Midwest, on the Mississippi River that, you know, they, those are commodity crop growers to a large extent. And, you know, they're the ones that it would really be great if we could get um, conservation practices in place in, in those farms. We know that that would have a measurable impact. Um, and we know that there are some cover cropping systems that can work and that, you know, theoretically that, that could, you know, enough people have done them to show that that's something that is plausible and feasible um, and even in some cases can be profitable. Um, once people figure out how to do it correctly, um, this is a, a win-win situation. Um, right. It's just been really hard to get farmers to adopt these practices and maintain them um, for a variety of reasons. Let's talk about what some of those, um, what some of these processes are. So you talk about first of all that they're they're carrots. So a lot of them are voluntary, or m- many mm-hmm. of them are voluntary. Um, but which ones, like in particular, have proven to be the most effective? Um, yeah, and then I've got a couple other <laughs> questions about them, but let's just kind of run through the list of like the, the big ones. Sure. So, I mean, things like buffer strips, um, you know, so putting in kind of like a riparian grass buffer zone so that um, nutrient, the grasses right by a stream would soak up all of the nutrients before they all go into the stream or you know, incentivizing for people to do cover crops or conservation tillage. So mainly, you know, the big, the biggest thing you want to do is to keep a root in the ground. <laughs> like you don't want the bare soil there because, you know, that's just going to cause both erosion and all of those excess nutrients just to go straight into waterways. So, but if you have a, a seed or a root or a plant growing, that is a source of um, soaking up all of these extra nutrients. And so that's why a lot of these, um, you know, kind of voluntary incentive programs have at, it's at their heart some kind of soaking up mechanism to get all of that excess nutrients that were in, applied to the system and kind of put them back into plant matter and so they don't go into the streams. Okay. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a big component of all of these voluntary programs that have popped up. But... A lot of them are very short term, you know, they'll pay somebody to do this for 
one to three years. And then oftentimes if the payment doesn't continue, the farmer won't continue to do the practice. And by payment, you mean payment from, oh, just like, yeah. Yeah, just kind of like a government incentive program. Okay. So, um, you know, they will get paid. The government will pay the farmer to do this, um, you know, X practice. Uh, and so that's enough of an incentive to just give it a try. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, those, like I said, short term and that doesn't, people don't often continue to practice. And we'll talk a little bit more in a, in a bit about how you have found a lot of these practices to be profitable. But first, I want to kind of learn a little bit more about what some of these are. Um, so no-till practices, I didn't realize that, I thought that just tilling the land was something that is good for the soil and that everybody just kind of automatically does. But you're saying that there are some practices, like from a conservation perspective, that this might not be ideal? Uh, yeah, so whenever you turn over the soil, um, you are kind of disrupting the soil structure. And you also are making it easier to for the soil to erode. Um, and so a lot of people, especially in, um, you know, kind of highly erodible areas, a big push has been made to try and introduce no-till practices. So instead of tilling up the soil, um, you directly feed the next crop into the residue from the crop before. You don't, you leave the soil structure in place. You, um, you don't disrupt the, you know, all of the organic matter that has been built up and you have this, this um, you know, it, it's harder. It, you have to have a special kind of drill. So there's a lot of upfront costs to going into no-till. Um, okay. And that can be a big, um, that can be a, a very cost prohibitive step for a lot of farmers. But often you find these kind of no-till evangelists that are out there who swear by the fact that their organic matter levels start to increase their soil structure is better they don't their soil erosion goes down quite a bit they don't lose as much soil um there's all of these really good reasons to do these practices but it's really expensive on the front end to kind of transition to that type of system okay got it so um so I, I, yeah, I was just curious about how that works, like tilling. I mean, this is just kind of getting really into the farming um, <laughs> technicalities. But yeah, I just thought that tilling, like turning the land was necessary for the seeding process. Um, but you're saying there's like a specific method to the no-till practices that requires some level of technology. It's a, it's just a different um, drill that okay. is able to put the seed directly into, into the, 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 yeah, into the residue. So, I mean, you're, you... Oftentimes, sometimes there's a trade-off. You may have to use a few more chemicals to control weeds um, and to kill off the, the residue enough to get the drill into the field. Mm-hmm. But maintaining the soil structure is the ultimate goal. And the only way to do that is not to fill up the soil. And then you get, um, you know, a soil structure. Like if you want a soil that has a lot of earthworms and a lot of life in it and a lot of porosity so that it will soak up water, you know, you don't want to disturb it too often. That is a property that only happens if you leave the soil alone. And if you till it every single year, you kind of destroy the, the soil's ability to be able to hold water and nutrients. It, it becomes more highly erodible um, if, with, with excessive tillage. Which is a, a big problem, soil erosion, right? Um, in yeah. addition to, to runoff and sounds like a big contributing factor too. So what about precision fertilizer management and things like nitrogen stabilizers? What are these um, conservation efforts? 
So um, I think definitely precision fertilizer management is one of those things that, you know, really has a lot of promise. And I think a lot of people have staked a lot of hopes on that. Um, And that's really just kind of doing some more intensive soil testing around your field, um, really understanding your field at a very intimate level and knowing exactly where your bare spots are that you need to apply the fertilizer. So instead of, you know, wholesale, you know, broadcasting fertilizer over the entire field, maybe you have certain spots that are just fine and don't need any more. And any more is just going to be excess that, you know, it's just a waste of money to Mm -hmm. apply it. And so if you can really just kind of use, um, a lot of people are using GPS and um, really kind of getting this um, pretty intensive mapped um, soil fertility um, level peak at what's happening on their field, then they know where they need to apply which nutrients um, and can really kind of hone in on um, that's all they need to do. And, and so I think that's got a lot of promise. Um, it's a way to reduce uh, the amount of overall fertilizers, hopefully reduce significantly the excess amount of fertilizers. But, you know, that's, again, got a pretty um, solid upfront cost. It's real techie. A lot of people... You know, that can be a little bit of a turnoff. You know, that's just a lot of intensive management and things. A lot, what I find is interesting is a lot of the younger farmers just geek out and love it. Yeah. They think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, so, I imagine. Yeah, and it saves them money. I mean, if, in, I understand, you know, upfront costs are hard, especially, you know, in today's environment. Um, but it really can help them dial in um, their overall costs and probably pay for itself over a fairly short amount of time. So you wrote about that um, in your kind of follow-up article uh, to the to the piece that you dedicated to runoff. So tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of the profitability of some of these some of these um, conservation efforts. Well, so I think the thing that shocked me the most. So the Environmental Defense Fund had this report that came out recently that. They had taken, um, they, they have a group of farmers that they work with on a fairly regular basis just to try to figure out, you know, how, what, what are farmers' needs and how can they, um, you know, kind of do studies that will address those needs. And one of them is, you know, we need to know how, if and how these are profitable. Are these conservation practices making a difference to our bottom line? And I kind of was shocked that nobody had done this before. I mean, right. I think the value of organic matter, you know, we all know that organic matter has value in fields. Nobody's put a dollar amount on that. And so, you know, like one of the farmers, Justin Knopf, he's increased his organic matter level from, you know, around, I believe it's 1.5% to around 3 to 3.5%. And that's huge. That's a big deal. And but by, sorry, sorry to cut you off, uh, um, but by organic matter, just to be clear, are you talking about like, um, additional topsoil or, you know, um, compost? Like, what, what does that really mean? So organic matter is just, the percent of organic matter in soil is just how much, um, you know, carbon uh, and different nutrients are, are, are in the soil. And so you want a soil that's rich in organic matter. So this can just be kind of degrading plant biomass. It can, it can be, you know, <laughs> dead bugs. This can be like whatever organic source it is. All that is is fuel for the soil microbes to do their thing and make for a richer soil. So it's just really the nutrient, the kind of 
organic nutrient level that's just going to be in the soil anyway. Okay. And so you want a steady amount of organic matter always degrading, always replenishing the soil with nutrients. And so, you know, a lot of soils don't have that much that, you know, a lot of the like cover crops, perfect example. If you till in a cover crop after you've grown it, um, all of that organic matter is going to break down and just become part of the percentage of organic matter that you have in the soil. And that's great because it's just kind of a constant fuel source for soil microbes that are just doing their thing in the soil and keeping it healthy. And so if you increase your organic matter by a percentage or two, and that's a lot, and that typically takes a long time just to get enough organic matter put back into the soil that can be kind of turned into this, you know, long-lived supply of nutrients, um, that has value. And that that helps hold water, that helps, um, you know, create soil structure, it helps all reduce runoff, it has all of these benefits. Mm-hmm. But nobody had ever put a dollar value on that. And we still don't really have a dollar value. But what the EDF report did was just go through the books of three farmers in detail and really look at how much they spent on the conservation practice and how much um, their other costs were reduced as a result of, um, you know, taking those other steps. And a lot of times, um, you know, there was a net gain. Um, in all three cases, there were net gains. And the, the really profound thing was that yields increased in the good years and yield losses decreased in bad years. So they were more resilient farms because they had more organic matter on their farms because they... Um, had taken great pains to kind of hold the soil intact through conservation tillage methods. And so overall, they, you know, really kind of came out of every situation for the better. Um, You know, they had higher yields in good years and they had, you know, they maintained yields in bad years better than some of their neighbors. And so it just is kind of this buffer system to just, by being able to keep your soil healthy and on your land, you are just more resilient um, than maybe some of your neighbors are. How expensive are these practices for the in terms of the initial investment? So one of the farmers, um, I was looking at uh, the farm finance report, and so an average was um, you know like fifteen dollars per acre, an additional increased cost for the seed for like a cover crop. And then maybe they would pay another few bucks in um, fertilizers and chemicals just to get the cover crop um, up and going and, um, and then also um, get rid of the cover crop right before they grow their cash crop. But this cost savings, they didn't have to pay as much for fertilizer, especially, especially if you grow um, you know, a nitrogen-producing cover crop, something that's going to leave more nitrogen in the soil than what it came in mm-hmm. with. Um, and so, and they also reduce costs on labor and on fuel and oil. And so, you know, it, the costs end up balancing themselves out and then they get out of it the yield boost. And so it's just kind of a different way of looking at, um, you know, the overall costs that go into this system. It's really just like a whole systems approach. You know, you may have to pay a little bit more on the front end and that's what scares a lot of farmers. But really, there's all these other savings that you benefit from that um, maybe people don't take into account. So one of the things that you um, talk about is that a motivating factor for these farmers is the threat of um, government regulation, uh, especially mm-hmm. especially since 
to date, a lot of them have been, um, you know, they've been voluntary programs. So honestly, like, given what's at stake here and and how dire the situation is like what is what is so bad with government regulation <laughs> i honestly i'm a bigger fan of regulation i think than most people but like why not in this situation doesn't it seem like it's high time i think that's where we're headed um and that's what i think scares farmers so far you know farmers are not so into regulation yeah <laughs> well not a lot of people not- are <laughs> Right. They are not into being told um, how, what and how they have to do something. And so, and I think that's the thing that is so frustrating is that, you know, we've had a lot, a long, long time of voluntary government programs and stuff in place for people to transition to conservation practices and, and people just aren't doing it. And so now, you know, um, in the Chesapeake Bay, they just said enough. It's, it's not getting better. And so they put in place the very first, um, you know, regional wide, what's called a total maximum daily load. So it said, this is all of the pollution that we're going to allow in the Chesapeake Bay. And we don't care how you state, there's six states involved. We don't care how you deal with your nutrient pollution, but this is all that's allowed. And you have to figure out a way to deal with it. And so people around the country, farmers around the country saw that And just, I think it kind of sent a wake up call around the country that said, okay, if we don't do this on our own, somebody's going to tell us we have to do it. And we might not have much of a say in how we have to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think, you know, that's a real, I think it's a very scary time because, I mean, as you know, you all, you, you probably know and your listeners know. You know, commodity prices have come down quite a bit in the last five years. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, everyone's looking for ways to cut costs. And so the last thing you want to have is someone telling you, okay, you're going to have to spend more money to reduce the amount of nutrients that are coming off your land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's just a very scary time. And especially when we have a farm bill that we don't know what's going to happen to conservation practices, but it looks like the the likelihood is that conservation is going to be cut mm-hmm. at some level um, and hopefully not as you know badly as it, it, it potentially could be um, under the House bill. The House bill is much more cuts to conservation than the current Senate bill does and clearly yeah. they have a lot of work to do to figure all of that out but I think the writing is on the wall that there's not going to be as much money for conservation as there has been in the past. Right. Um, what are the what are the some of the examples of some legislative efforts that are currently underway? Um, as far as oh, for to to um, you know reduce. It's so funny, by the way. You said you know to, uh, like to reduce the amount of nutrients coming off of, of of farmers' lands, and it's not really. I mean, I guess it's nutrients, but it, essentially it's pollution, right? I mean, it, that's what it ends it's up. It's both. Being. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing. I mean, it's nutrients if it's doing good things and it's pollution if it's doing bad things. Right, right. Well, uh, it ultimately ends up in waterways and, um, you know, potentially contaminating drinking water, for, for example, as, yeah. as you say. So in terms of, so what are some major legis- legislative like efforts like currently happening um, at either the state le- level or if there are any at the federal level? Um, in place now that we can point to as maybe for farmers to be worried about or for conservationists to be excited about, depending on how you look at it. 
Right. I think, it's, you know, a couple of states are trying some new approaches. Um, you know, some people are still clinging to the carrot um, yeah. kind of scenario. And so I believe that it is Iowa who last year tried a novel approach, which I think is really a lot of people are talking about and are pretty excited about. And they are um, encouraging farmers. Well, so farmers who plant cover crops, they receive a $5 per acre discount on their crop insurance for the next three years. And, you know, I think that is something that really has a lot of potential because it's it's kind of a win-win scenario. It's one where, um, you know, that is a pretty significant um, break on insurance. And it's also something that, you know, is very low risk to try. Um, and so it, I think that that kind of is a really nice way to encourage people, pretty significantly encourage them to try this. I'm going to be really interested to watch the numbers over the next couple of years to see how many people take advantage of that program. Because if something like that doesn't motivate more farmers to really do something, then I don't know what will, honestly, on the voluntary front. Um, yeah, And I think you know, other other states are looking at, um, you know, how the Chesapeake Bay um, TMDL works out. If, if, I mean, so far, they haven't made a lot of progress um, with that. And I think that pro, the TMDL has been in place for several years now. Um, and it's just not really having a huge impact. It's really, really hard to regulate farmers. They're just such a dispersed, diffuse group. Yeah, there's not a lot of regulatory manpower out there to make sure that people are doing what they need to be doing. And, you know, it can build up a lot of resentment and a lot of backlash. And so I think it's just a really, um, you know, it's really time to get creative and come up with some, you know, really either um, impressive carrots that people would just be absolutely foolish not to try and not to, you know, really commit to or coming up with some kind of regulatory push that, um, you know, has the ability to get people on board without risking a backlash. Yeah. I mean, what do, broadly speaking, what kind of technical assistance mechanisms are in place to encourage and support farmers who are kind of going out on a limb and trying some of these innovative practices? Um, well, that's part of the problem, honestly. Uh, in um, my article, I kind of talk about how, you know, a lot of um, the kind of conservation um, officials that kind of are through state extension agencies, you know, they they can't do it all. And they're the first kind of line of people that are called in to try and do something along these lines. And then if they're not available, people turn to the um fertilizer distributor for information and a lot of times they don't have the correct information and that's been a real source of frustration out in the field is that you know the guys that are selling you seed and fertilizers they're not the best ones to probably be offering up (laughs) yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna imagine like you know pharmaceutical companies are going to be dissuading their um Mm -hmm. providers from using less medication like that's ridiculous Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, yes. Well, what about, so, oh yeah, sorry, go on. Oh no, no. It's just, that's, you know, that's the problem is those are the guys that are in the field. And if you want advice and that's the only one to turn to, you know, what kind of advice are you going to get? And so I think this has been a constant kind of issue, but there are, 
You know, there are teams of people um, like the Practical Farmers of Iowa who are really trying to um, work not only with farmers and with doing, you know, some really innovative um, kind of outreach and trying to arm farmers with information, but they're also working, you know, so it's kind of they're coming at it from two approaches, top up, top down and bottom up. So they're trying to give the farmers the information in hand and a lot of um, different groups are putting videos online on YouTube about how to do this and what works and what doesn't in certain areas and give advice and just really try to go directly to the farmer. And then they're also working with, um, you know, this coalition of some of the top companies and conservation groups to really kind of um, create cost share programs. And so having, um, you know, food manufacturers only, you know, or, or try and ideally find farmers who are using cover crops to contract with to grow their products that they want. They want to, the, the companies want to support sustainable conservation practices in the field. And so, you know, they're kind of going out of their way to um, contract with, say, soy growers that are going to commit to adopting cover crops and kind of give them the premium contract in the area. And so, it's, you know, hopefully the more of these kinds of efforts are going to come online and to be able to motivate from a lot of different angles. Right. Um, what, so I mentioned the recent UN climate change report. What is the connection between some of the findings coming out of that, um, report and its relationship to, um, you know, the, the topics that you're covering in terms of the, mm-hmm. the problem with runoff in our waterways and, and, you know, the second part of that question is, um, do you think that this report has or will motivate policymakers to make to actually kind of put some of these legislative um, practices in place? Well, so I mean, I think every climate change report that comes out just gets scarier and scarier. And I've been covering this for 20 years. Um, And this is we're no this is no joke anymore. This is not this is not in the future. This is not something that we have time and the luxury of time to figure out this is we have 10 years to avoid the absolute worst case scenario. And that should be extraordinarily motivating for anyone um, who is paying attention. Um, So I think the thing that comes out of that that directly impacts farmers is extreme weather events. And so if we're going to have more hurricanes, if we're going to have more extreme weather events, more extreme rain events, Um, in the Midwest at awkward times when you should be harvesting, say, or Mm -hmm. when you should be planting. Um, And then you're going to have droughts when you don't want them. You know, these are things that are going to make a hard job even harder. And in some cases, just downright um, not feasible anymore. And so I think that, you know, the conservation practices, like I said earlier, just make a system more resilient. They're going to keep the soil on the land during those extreme rain events. They're going to hold moisture longer during the drought events. They're just going to buffer your operation against whatever kind of 
you know, weather mayhem we see as a result of climate change. So how do we get to these farmers, all of these farmers? You, you talk <laughs> about, I mean, so everybody, <laughs> how, do we, how do we change this? Listen up. Yes, listen up. <laughs> so but seriously, like, how do you, you talk about how, you know, disparate a group and, you know, it's really hard to talk to kind of like all farmers across the country and they are all dealing and have a, with separate issues that, you know, are maybe their like main priorities, but how, what is the most effective way to kind of get this message out to farmers? Like, is it through farmers themselves, the other farmers who are adopting these conservation practices or the media or like what? Um, Well, I think two things definitely need to happen. One is we need to not cut money for conservation efforts at this critical time. That is kind of the worst idea on the table right now. Mm -hmm. And at the most fundamental level, it, you know, really, honestly, everyone that I talk to for these pieces, it is farmers being leaders for farmers. And, you know, that was what was really heartening was seeing a lot and a lot of these really young guys who are just motivated and really eager to do farming in a completely different way that are really being the flag bearers for, you know, doing this differently and um, creating that kind of resiliency that they know they're going to need. And so once you start having some of these leaders that step forward and, you know, invite people onto their property and show them what they're doing and how well it's working or open up their books for EDF to do a report in the hopes that, you know, we get more follow-on studies along these lines so we can really prove to insurers and to farming lenders that these practices have value that hasn't been captured in the financial system. That's when we're going to start to see change. Um, okay, so I always ask this question of my guests um, when, you know, kind of at the at the end of every episode and and that is what can listeners do to encourage conservation practices and farmers to adopt them so this doesn't seem as simple as voting with your fork or calling (laughs) your local representative so how can those you know interested in this topic and in making a change get involved you know that is a hard one um because it isn't straightforward and it isn't easy i think um you know one of the main things is when you see companies like Cargill or Pepsi, who are really kind of going out of their way to launch programs to incentivize um, their farmers to grow, you know, crops in a, um, using cover crops or no-till, you know, support those products or let your legislator know that that's something you want to see, you know, them work towards more of, of, you know, however we can incentivize farmers to be able to do this. How can we help them help their land values. I mean, it just is really like when you think of it in that way of win, 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 you know, there has to be some creativity out there to um, really kind of get more momentum on, uh, on these lines. But it is one of those very intractable issues that is so far removed from the average person. It can be really frustrating to figure out what you can do. And I, I, you know, I don't have an easy answer, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, none of these, none of the topics that I like to talk about on this show have easy answers, unfortunately. Um, although you can do a lot by your, by your food choices, that's for sure. Um, yeah. And the, and the companies, you're right, the companies you choose to support. So um, one of the things they can do, the listeners can do is read more, um, you know, educate themselves more about mm-hmm. these topics. And to that end, I want to ask um, where can our listeners kind of find more 
more of your work and um, follow the, you know, follow the work that you're doing on these topics specifically? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm a freelance science journalist. I write um, for a lot of different publications. Um, and, but probably the easiest way is to just either look on my website. I try to keep it updated with um, with my most recent things or on my Twitter feed. And it's just virginiaguin.com is my website and Virginia Guin, um on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Last question. What's next for you? Anything, uh, anything you want to give us a little heads up on that you're interested in covering or something that we should, you know, keep our eyes peeled for? Um, well, I just uh, did a piece uh, for a website called biographic.com that is all about looking at efforts in the Amazon to um, see if wild foods can help save uh, the Amazon from deforestation. So trying to find the value and the native wild foods that are in the forest so that the people there can hold on to their culture, their biodiversity, and have um, you know really good livelihoods. Um, and instead of clearing the land for growing oil palm, <laughs> so um, if you want to have a little exotic flavor, yeah, you can go find that article. It's it was really I got to go to Peru in May, and it was a really interesting set of. Um, just a a different set of farming challenges than I had looked at before, but it was really interesting and, um, it was a fun one to do. Yeah, well, I'll have to have you back to talk all about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there, but Virginia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great, thank you so much for having me. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, I'll be joined by Ariel Lauren Wilson to talk about the upcoming conference, Food Loves Tech. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. And we're back. We're uh, on Eating Matters. We're, we're going to continue our conversation about the role of tech in the food and ag industry that we started to talk about in our my previous segment. Um, and we're going to talk about one way that this concept is being promoted. So joining me in the studio now 
To get into this topic is Ariel Lauren Wilson. Hi. A.K.A. Lauren. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's the editor-in-chief of Edible Brooklyn and is the program director of the upcoming Food Loves Tech Conference hosted by Edible um, on November 2nd and 3rd. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah. And in person. And in person. (laughs) A lot of intersecting worlds, but... Never in person. Here we are. I love it. So, so great to be in person. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about this conference. What's it it all about? Tell me everything. Yeah. So this is our third year with Food Loves Tech. Um, The way it started um, was really kind of to have, I think, the founders who included Brian Hallweil, who is my colleague at Edible, and Meg Savage, who is another colleague I have there. um, They kind of conceived it a few years ago as I don't know if you've ever been to like Terra Madre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked with Slow Food in the past. Okay, so I've never been to Terra Madre, but I worked with them like in advance of. Right. Yeah. So you know, like the idea of like the Sony del Gusto, where you walk around and you're sampling stuff from all over the world that fits the criteria of Slow Food. I think they envisioned um, Food Loves Tech to be kind of this expo area where you could do something similar, but it was curated around the types of innovations we want to see in the future. So um, how that's evolved in practice mm-hmm. over the past three years is that um, I like to call Food Loves Tech uh, a place where we're trying to celebrate the innovations that are making our food system more sustainable, more equitable, more delicious, and more nutritious. Um, and we look at that all along the value chain. We start in the field in the sea, mm-hmm. and then we go into the home, into the city, um, as we call it, um, for, for the sake of the event. and in different regions and then we go to the end which is looking at the future how emerging technologies like AI and VR how they're being used and applied and what that means for us as eaters Um, so that's one part of Food Loves Tech is the main ethos my involvement primarily is bringing in people to talk on these topics for those two days Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I, I mean, I want to know about some of the panels that you're particularly excited yeah. about. Um, but first, I mean, I guess when I first um, when this first started, I I thought like edible. I didn't necessarily expect edible to be doing a conference on food and tech. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like the? So it was inspired by Terra Madre, but was there you know internal like questioning of is this our space right. or you know like yeah do we want is this kind of the future of edible like how does those two those two things relate i think that's a great question because i think a lot of people are surprised to find that you know a local food magazine that is 15 years old that has you know sister publications across the country um started as a high-end farmer's market newsletter why are we doing a tech (laughs) conference yeah um and the way i understand it is that as you know, different food businesses, especially over the past decade, have started, and there has been energy around wanting to change the food system for better. Mm-hmm. Um, that what is happening also in tech during this time um, is a way to kind of scale those ideas in theory, in a way that hopefully we can point to like the emerging tools that are coming out of tech as a way of being like, this is how we're going to achieve the food system we want. Um, So I think that's kind of like a natural pivot even for our editorial because so much of what's going on in Brooklyn and New York City at large in terms of food businesses are people trying to harness things that have come more out of like 
Um, you know, we could take different examples of the tech world, but you know, trying to find ways. You work with our harvest, mm-hmm. so you use tools that. Um, when I say tech, I don't necessarily mean high tech, but are right. definitely things, are innovations that make, I don't know, a POS system more simplified yep. that for sourcing and tracking and um, allowing people to order online for delivery. Yeah. All these things have kind of come out of, you know, as different systems have evolved with computers. So that's kind of where it is. Yeah, where you're where you're going. Okay. Yeah. Now it makes perfect sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> did, I, did I like tie yeah. it together? Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. No, I think it's great, and it's like the next wave and iteration with kind of where we're going in the in the food movement. Like you said, like what changes are going to be most effective, you yeah. know, for 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 achieving those those changes that we so desperately need in our in our food system. And so, I, can I add another point to that absolutely. too that I think is so important? Um, in our day and age, obviously, I think about politics a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people look for food systems change these days in the private sector, um, seeing that as a place where we can move the needle a bit yeah. more than we can right now, and ex- can, especially in the U.S., expect um, our government to do. Oh, you don't think our government's very supportive of making I mean, changes to the food could- system? <laughs> or, like, regulation of, you know, oh, yeah. the food system or chemical companies or any of that? Oh, we can start a debate. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, but I, I also think it's important to add there that we shouldn't forget what is the responsibility of our government. In as much as I feel like Food Loves Tech really shines a light on the possibilities of the private sector, you know, we are also bringing in the, the Brooklyn Borough President Eric L. Adams and Councilman Espinal, who represents actually this area of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. to talk about, you know, what is public policy here? Sam Cass will be there, who was at the White House with the Obamas, yep. worked on food policy. Former guest chef. of Eating Matters. I'm sure he's been on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. He's a lovely guy. Um, but... I think it is important, too, that even though we're in this period where I don't think we can expect much of anything from our government, Mm -hmm. um, we don't stop holding them accountable. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And you, I don't know if you had a chance to listen in on my my first segment, but I straight up said, like, what's so bad with regulation when we're talking about the horrible consequences that excess runoff from, you know, these farms are are causing and wreaking havoc on, um, you know, just the environment um so yes i totally agree and i think that one thing that's important that you said is you know you're bringing together um i mean with the exception of sam but elected official locally elected officials yes. right and so in this day and age where we can affect like assume that nothing's gonna, good is going to happen from the federal the federal level exactly. it's re- more important to kind of rely on and push and hold accountable your local elected officials officials as well and yeah i mean this is like i come from the new york city health department and city hall world where we made major changes to the food system just like shameless plug for the bloomberg administration i guess I don't know, but yeah. yeah so no that's I when totally that office agree. was founded in new york city and i think is an incredible testament to like in my mind democracy happens locally mm-hmm. and in new york city we're fortunate enough to have a lot of progressive examples of of public policy that i think can be an, an example hopefully to people elsewhere yeah um, and if you can pull something off like this in new york like you can do it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what are what are some of the topics that you're going to be talking about? You know, you're going to bring like say these elected officials together, these policymakers like what um, what panel will be they, they be on and what, you know, kind of conversations are you expecting sure. to have? Um yeah, so the way so I described earlier the expo like tasting portion of Food Loves Tech where people the idea is to be really immersed, but I'm going to be mostly working on 
I have worked on. It has to be done now. It's happening next week. <laughs> it has to be done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's two days of panel conversations that um, are 12 topics that I think are some of the most pressing facing the food supply. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, just to speak to what Councilman Espinal's on, the panel kicking us off is actually moderated by another Heritage host, Lisa Held, who nice. does the Farm Report. Yeah, um, She's moderating a panel on the future of urban agriculture in New York City, which is kind of at a crossroads as some of these VC-funded startups for indoor agriculture are taking off, but also New York City has this incredible rich history of community gardens and soil-based farms um, that don't have that sort of funding. Right. And um, in any case, that sort of panel will tackle that question. Espinal has proposed different forms of legislation that both encourage urban agriculture as an entrepreneurial um, pursuit, whether that is, you know, from this more sophisticated infrastructure or is more just like keeping our spaces green and giving people access to local food in their own area and mm-hmm. making sure we protect those spaces. That's one example. Brooklyn Borough President Eric L. Adams is on another panel talking about the innovations that can hopefully improve our health mm-hmm. um, and he is a big advocate of plant-based diets in mm-hmm. in Brooklyn in particular well, that's his where, where, where he is but um, he's really into encouraging doctors to prescribe vegetables as medicine um, you know for people with chronic illness that's related to diet yeah. uh, so those are a couple examples we have um, I'll be moderating a panel with Sam that has to do with genetics and the food supply um, looking at you know what there's several other people on there too Urvashi Rangan Jason Grauer from also Stone Barns Urvashi also a former guest oh excellent <laughs> I mean we if people miss Food Loves Tech why don't they just listen they to should your just show yeah they should, they do, should both. Just do the backlog they should just do both yeah yeah they should do both if you want more if you come to Food Loves Tech and you want to hear more <laughs> Just go to Jenna's show. <laughs> From like two years ago. Yeah, perfect. Um, so you know Urvashi then. We're a, lo- we're a little behind the tech curve. I'm a little behind the tech curve in previous episodes, but... Um, with It's right here upon us. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So she's phenomenal. Oh. I mean, you've got... That's what a brilliant... I, I mean, your lineup is like so many heavy hitters. Like yeah. Like really great speakers. Yeah, but, no, I'm, I'm really honored that people have made time for it and... Um, I was, you know, last year, I think we really hit a stride with part of it, but people are showing up. I think these are conversations people want to have as different things are marketed at us, as we all want to try to do better, as we want to try to find convenient ways to fit it into our lives. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of questions and we should keep questioning, yeah. um, especially with the absence of a government. So a federal government, at least. So. Yeah. So yeah. what so what ex- to what extent? So you talk about like urban agriculture and I maybe have my own you know, thoughts on that. Like, yeah. I think of a city like Detroit. Brilliant for urban agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm I'm fr- very familiar with Detroit. I'm from there. But like just acres and acres and acres. So that could be more possible and more kind of um higher volume but like I guess so my question is and considering that uh, edible is throughout the country what to what extent is this conference very focused on New York and, and Brooklyn versus um, the rest of the US and and you know in some of these discussions happening yeah are they like Brooklyn based or are they kind of for everybody that's a really good point um So I think just getting, I mean, there's definitely a vision where we want to have Food Loves Tech everywhere. And depending on where people are, you know, it's going to be appropriate for their local community. But I think at the same time, you know, there is no roadmap right now to take it to other cities. That's not to say we're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I feel like most of the panels at Food Loves Tech 
could be applicable to people even if they're not living in New York City. You know, yeah. some of the topics that come up, like how, what is the role of tech in restaurants? Um, you know, what is the role of tech in protecting our seafood and making, like, eating seafood more sustainable as an act? Like, those are just things that us right. as eaters should be concerned about regardless of where we are. Um, I think urban agriculture is a very locally... It's a very local question. There are some of these topics that I think are very local questions. Right, but yeah. and others that will apply more broadly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to the uh, Edible Brooklyn is about Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys, you know, you're very, it seems yeah. like Edible is very, it is very tailor- tailored to the particular publication. And so then it makes sense that it's going to be more Brooklyn-focused, right? Or New York City-focused, this particular conference. Yeah. I can't wait for one that's happened in Detroit. That would be amazing. I would totally travel for Oh, that. my gosh. I would love to do one in Detroit. I mean, there's. I think there's... Detroit's a great example for me of innovation that's happening in the absence also of tech-funded VC. Yeah, like, yeah. it's people serving themselves with innovations that they're coming up with on their own. And I think that that... My ideal vision for Food Loves Tech is where we can also bring those stories in the room, too. Food Loves Tech is a bit of a misnomer in that it's a little more technophilic than I like. But I think it's like if I can just get people in there who are shining examples of how people can take control of their food. Right. Then great. Yeah. Like the food, the future of the food system. Yeah. What's um, what's new about this? This well, you know, what's new for this year? There's going to be a tractor. Wow. In Brooklyn? There's going to be a tractor. I'm retiring after Food Loves Tech because it is my single greatest professional feat. You're like, mic drop. Yeah. I'm done at the ripe old age of... 30. No, yeah. I'm 29. There you go. I'm not 30 yet. I'm <laughs> not 30 yet. I'm always six months ahead in my mind of how old I am to prepare myself for the next age. Yeah. Like, I've been 36 for over a year now. <laughs> <laughs> my, my birthday is incoming, but um, yeah, a tractor's coming. Like, I just forgot how old I was. Yeah, I don't even know anymore. Does it matter? <laughs> no. But there's a tractor coming to Brooklyn, and that's what matters. To Industry City? Where is it? Yeah, so it's at Industry City in Sunset Park. Um, not that far if you take the N or the D. Okay. There's some other trains that go down there. Um, the tractor's coming from Stone Barns, from our friends ah. up there. They have um, an open source tractor okay. called the Ogun. Um, which you can actually, the the idea of the Ogun, which I think is very powerful, is that this gentleman, this man named Horace, he was working in Cuba with farmers, and he realized that they could really benefit from some small farm tools that um, they just didn't have access to there, but Mm -hmm. he knew of in the U.S. And he was like, he's an engineer by training. He kind of like had the mind for it. He decided he was going to make plans for a tractor that you could build just with stuff at the hardware store. Mm -hmm. And so he designed this tractor that, like, you know, ostensibly anybody can go online, get this stuff, build it themselves. You don't go to a store to get it other than, like, I don't know, your uh, body shop or something like that. But uh, that's one thing that'll be there, our little open source tractor. That's new. Yeah. Very cool. What else are you, like, I mean, obviously so excited for the whole thing. It all sounds amazing. Yeah. But if there's, like, one thing that you want to tell people, do not miss this. Oh, I already, I already like spoiled it with the tractor. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, if, but, the well, second thing, be, the second thing. The the second thing is I feel like this year we're actually going to have more food and drink for people to try. Mm-hmm. I think that people should come in um, uh, hungry. They should definitely come hungry. They should know that once you buy your ticket, mm-hmm. which 
if you use the code FLT30 at checkout, it's 30% off. FLT30. FLT30. Nice. No space, all caps. All right. Um, that it's all you can eat and drink. And Gramercy Tavern is doing a pop-up throughout the event. Wow. Little Tongs there. Insa, which I love Insa beyond belief. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of incredible chef partners. And, um, yeah, come hungry. And it'll be surprisingly come filling. Come hungry, for, full. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a little tipsy? Are you serving alcohol? I mean... I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to go on the record. Okay. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, at some point we Question are, mark. but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like Maybe. You're going to find out. Show There'll up. Be lots of oat milk. There <laughs> I just bought some today. Yeah. <laughs> I Oatly, love oat milk. Oatly is one of our big sponsors for the event. You know. There'll be lots of oat There will be milk. tons of oat milk. <laughs> Done. I don't know any bigger selling point yeah, to the not. Brooklyn audience. Yeah. I feel like my, with my first purchase of oat milk, it solidified my Brooklynite status, even after being in the borough for about 10 years. Like, I wasn't a Brooklynite until I bought oat milk. And then it was like, yep. Yeah. I have arrived. Well, you can, like, fully bask in that if you can to full food <laughs> Everyone can become a Brooklynite. Yep. <laughs> We're giving out free lattes with... And this is not a, a joke. It's not an exaggeration. It's <laughs> okay. That is amazing. So where can people go to get tickets? Foodlesstech.com. Like I said, use FLT30 at checkout to get 30% off. Can they get tickets at the door if they are like me and procrastinate? I mean, we're hoping to sell the thing out, yeah. um, but... And are you, are you close? So people need. To I would encourage. Here. I would encourage people to go online first. Yeah. And um, day of, if you're really compelled to come, I think that you know we'll find a way to get you in. But, okay. Um, yeah. And then for people who work on Fridays, right? Who can't make it, like mm-hmm. tons of it's tons of stuff on Saturday too, right? Yeah. So it's two days, Friday and Saturday. We're starting at ten thirty in the morning, going to, I think four is our closing time, and um, all the panels are going to be captured on video and also audio to be posted later later and the expo side should be the same both days although i have to say the tractor will not be there on saturday right it is just a friday event oh my god so ask your boss off right if like you need you need the time off yeah you're like sir <laughs> there's a tractor that i need to see yeah and i don't know what boss would be like no and get another job <laughs> yeah priorities priorities Mm -hmm. amazing um all right well we are gonna have to leave it there but before we do you have a very exciting edible announcement right yeah so i appreciate it Mm. to be able to cross pollinate here on your show cross promote um we're launching a podcast too that weekend called in the field amazing which is really exciting. The first season of In the Field really takes this food and technology um, idea head on, and it's five episodes, and we're examining it from, we, we do an episode that's front and back at house at Stone Barns and Blue Hill, looking at how they use tech, both low and high, to pull off what they do up there. They yeah. have one of the most sustainable food operations in the world. Um, and then we have another episode that goes into the indoor farming in New York City, trying to understand what that means and who it, who who it's for. Um, there's an oat milk episode. Oh my god! Oatly's our sponsor for the season, but come on, yeah. like we all need to know more about it. Yeah, I um, do. Yeah, 
Definitely. Uh, Beyond what I drink. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's awesome. So five seasons or five episodes to start and it launches on Edible's platform or where, you know, where can you find it? Yeah. So the trailer will launch November 2nd, which is next Friday, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then every two weeks will be coming out after that. It'll be on anywhere where you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. I'm learning all of yeah, I feel like I stop. I'm like iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else. <laughs> yeah, there's just a whole <laughs> list. They come and go. There's a, whole, there's a whole thing. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on the show to chat about this. My pleasure. Get your tickets. Yay. Okay, um, we are uh, wrapping up for today. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support. And also thanks to our fantastic engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or wherever podcasts are found. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.